Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Energized protesters took to the streets across the country this weekend. One state is already entangled with legal challenges over their laws to prevent abortions. And corporate America is chiming in. Women react to Biden's proposed changes to Title IX. The administration wants to add gender identity to the law that has helped level the playing field for women for half a century. How might these changes affect them? Border agents have been releasing more illegal immigrants into the U.S. under the catch and release program in recent years. The number has more than doubled in five years. Will non-citizens be able to vote in New York City? A law that gave them the go-ahead has met with a major barrier in court. We'll tell you what happened. G7 leaders are moving closer to imposing a price cap on Russian oil. What would that mean and will it actually work? This as President Biden commits $200 billion to a global infrastructure plan to counter China. Former high school football coach Joe Kennedy was previously fired for praying on the field after games. Today, the Supreme Court ruled on his case, the culmination of a nearly seven-year-long legal battle. We start the evening with some breaking news. At least three passengers were killed and several more were injured when an Amtrak train derailed in rural Missouri this afternoon. That's according to media reports. The train was carrying around 250 people and traveling from Los Angeles to Chicago. It struck a construction vehicle that was obstructing a public crossing near Menden, Missouri. The train cars flipped onto the side and the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. This is a developing story and we'll keep you updated on the latest information. Our hearts, of course, go out to the victims and their families and we wish all those who are affected a speedy recovery. And turning now to Roe v. Wade. With over half of the country now working to restrict abortions, activists are preparing to push back. One state has already been hit this week with a lawsuit. Over the weekend, energized crowds expressed their excitement or dismay over the Supreme Court's overturning Roe v. Wade. Pro-abortion protesters and pro-life activists demonstrated around the country. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. For the first time since 1973, states will be allowed to enforce their own laws on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Roughly half the states in the U.S. are moving to restrict abortions following the Supreme Court's Friday ruling. Louisiana is one of the 13 states restricting abortions and is now entangled in legal challenges. A Louisiana judge today temporarily blocked the enforcement of the state's abortion prevention laws. And in one Texas county, the district attorney says he refuses to enforce the state's abortion laws. Here in Travis County, we will not criminalize personal health care decisions. And some big corporations are now chiming in on the issue, with companies like Nike, Kroger, Zillow, Netflix, Starbucks, and others offering to help their staff cover travel expenses if they need to travel to another state to get an abortion. Yelp is one of those companies. Companies are talking about social issues all the time, and this is one that affects a lion's share of their population of employees. And so to stay silent on it, I can't imagine why any company would be willing to do that. More than 30 Democrat senators requested President Biden to stop states from preventing abortions following the Supreme Court's ruling, using what they called in a joint letter the full force of the federal government. 
uh, people's rights to travel to states where abortion is legal in order to get the care that they need. And the attorney general talked about uh, pr uh, protecting access to medication abortion, which is very important I mean, states where abortion is still legal. Over the weekend, we heard from one Republican candidate for U.S. Senate who's been face to face with an abortion decision herself. And I chose life. My daughter is now a Navy veteran, college degree, owes two, owns two businesses, two beautiful children. And I got off that table and ran for my baby's life. So I understand what it's like to be on that table. And I'm always going to fight for our unborn. Pro-life activists say they have a plan to help women who may not be prepared to handle raising a baby. Helping them to sign up for Medicaid, for WIC, for CHIP, for these existing uh, public programs that are out there to help them get off their feet. In addition to protests at the nation's capital, a number of big cities were flooded with protesters over the weekend. Four people were arrested in Arizona after protests turned chaotic. While pro-abortion activists are ramping up their efforts to reverse this historic Supreme Court decision, others are hopeful this is a change towards more traditional values being restored. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And while the country responds to the ruling on Roe v. Wade, another significant change for women is on the horizon. After the Biden administration last week announced plans to alter Title IX, critics and supporters are speaking out. Title IX is a federal law that helped level the playing field for women in sports for the past 50 years. Here today to talk about how that could be changing is Julie Gunlock, director of the Independent Women's Network. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the Biden administration wants to expand Title IX protections to include sexual orientation and gender identity. What would this mean for girls and women? It would destroy women's sports and girls' sports. We've seen all over the country how biological men are now competing against young girls and college-age girls and even in professional women's sports. And women are losing. And the reason is obvious. Biological men and biological women are very different. And if you identify as a woman after going through puberty as a man, you are still a man for competition's sake. And so as a result, uh, we have women losing out on scholarships. They're losing placement on teams. And some sports uh, organizations have taken steps to bring fairness back, but certainly not all sports. And how could this impact women-only spaces? Well, look, you've got a lot of women-only spaces that are legal, like women's shelters, women's jails, and that type of discrimination is allowed in order for to keep women safe. And we've already seen instances of women becoming pregnant in women's prisons, and that is because intact males who identify as women are being allowed into the prison population. If this happens in shelters, and it already is, we could have women who are abused then be re-abused by people that are being allowed into these shelters. It's very concerning for the safety of women. Do you think the change could make it more difficult for women and girls to talk about feeling uncomfortable sharing women-only spaces like change rooms with men? 100%. I mean, I think that there's a pressure out there to just let it go um, and not say anything. But women have a right 
to feel safe in places where they're extremely vulnerable, like locker rooms, like bathrooms. Um, in the case of Leah Thomas, you have a you have a situation where girls are being expected to change in front of this male-bodied athlete. Um, and we've seen instances here in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, of a young woman being raped in a bathroom where a trans-identifying student went into that bathroom. These are serious issues that are not being taken seriously. And in addition, people who speak up are often bullied and told to be quiet and just let it go. It's not fair to women and it's not safe for women. Your organization has said that the proposed changes would actually undermine the original intent of Title IX. Could you explain a little about that? Title IX was designed to really empower women's sports or make women's sports um, stronger and present and able to compete with men's sports, which was getting a lot of funding. And so the idea was this would really create a level playing field. If they include, uh, you know, how you identify, they include LGBTQ language and really do away with the word women um, in Title IX, it will destroy women's sports. And certainly, as we're seeing now, we're seeing the chipping away of a lot of advances that women have been able to make in the sports arena. On the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the Biden administration made its announcement, and your organization also held a rally where many young athletes showed up and told their stories or had their stories told. Could you tell us a little more about their stories? I'm so you can see that I'm smiling as you're talking about this because it was just an amazing rally. We had hundreds of people there, and more importantly, we had incredible athletes, um, younger athletes, older athletes, professional athletes, college and high school athletes, and most of these women have been told to shut up. And this was an opportunity to stand up, tell their stories, talk about how devastating it is to compete against a male-bodied athlete and to be beaten and really taken out of your sport. Some girls lost scholarships, some, some lost positions on teams. We had one mother up there talking about how this was just a terrible, devastating impact on her daughter who had trained so hard. You're essentially telling these young girls that no matter how much training you do, how much sacrifice you do, if you go against a male-bodied athlete, you're not going to win. And so it was a great opportunity to bring these women together to tell their stories. And there's, there is safety in numbers. So we hope more athletes will, female athletes will speak out about this problem. And your organization is bringing together women from across the aisle, from many different political backgrounds to rally around this issue. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, it was great. You know, IWF is a non-religious free market organization. We focus mainly on economics, but we also had Concerned Women for America, that is a religious organization, as well as WOLF, which is a feminist, uh, a sort of left-wing feminist organization. Women agree on this issue. They want their daughters to sp play sports, they want to play sports, and they want fairness in women's sports. And what do you think needs to happen next? Well, look, we need to recognize that men and women are different. Their bodies are different. Men are physically stronger than women. We can't deny those facts. The Biden administration needs, needs to roll back the changes it made to Title IX. We need to, again, recognize that women deserve fairness in sports. And we need to, we need sports organizations and authorities to come forward and 
set new rules. And if that means a special designation, designation for transgender athletes, that's fine. It's important to remember, we never see this in rever reverse. We have a lot of male-bodied athletes identifying as women and competing in women's sports, winning awards, winning scholarships, winning accolades and media attention. You very rarely see the opposite where a woman identifies in a, as a man and then decides to compete as a man. It doesn't happen. It is unfair, just the real. It, it is a reality and it's not unkind uh, to point this out. Women deserve just as much kindness and certainly fairness when they compete. Julie Gunlock, director of the Independent Women's Network. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Interesting reflections there. And now we turn to another story about crossing borders, albeit in an entirely different way. A new report finds that the federal government has been using the catch and release program more than before. Under this program, illegal immigrants are released into the U.S. instead of being detained. Here are the details. A new report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that the federal government has enrolled more illegal immigrants in the Alternatives to Detention Program, or what's more commonly known as Catch and Release, since 2015. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, has been running the program since 2004. The federal government is required by law to detain illegal immigrants until they have a court hearing, but it doesn't have the capacity to do so. So a portion of the illegal immigrants captured at the border get released into the U.S. under this program. The new report says that in 2015, ICE enrolled 53,000 illegal immigrants in the program. By 2020, that figure jumped to 111,000. About a quarter of the illegal immigrants in the program fled the address they were supposed to stay at and could not be located. In fiscal year 2020, which stretched across the Trump and Biden administrations, 33% of those in the program could not be located. The Government Accountability Office got the figures by analyzing data from contractors paid to help run the program. The agency concluded that further actions could improve its implementation, assessment and oversight of the program and its $2.2 billion contract. The government agency issued 10 recommendations. They include making sure contractors meet standards and provide legal presentations to the illegal immigrants. Most illegal immigrants placed in the program from 2015 through 2020 were from Central America. New York City won't be able to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. A judge struck down the city's measure today, saying it's unconstitutional. The measure would have allowed hundreds of thousands of non-citizens to vote. And not all of them have green cards. Here are the details. New York City passed a law last December allowing non-citizens who have lived in the city for over 30 days to vote in municipal elections. New York State Judge Ralph Porzio struck down the measure on Monday, writing that, though voting is a right that so many citizens take for granted, the city of New York cannot obviate the restrictions imposed by the Constitution. New York City's measure would have covered permanent residents, foreign workers, and dreamers illegal immigrants who entered the U.S. as children. Together, they make up nearly one in nine of the city's voting age population, or 800,000. The measure became law in January, but the city hasn't held any elections yet. The New York Republican Party challenged the law. Party chair Nick Langworthy hailed the latest ruling as a victory for citizens' rights, election integrity, and the rule of law. The New York City government said in a statement, this is a disappointing court ruling for people who value bringing in thousands more New Yorkers into the democratic process. The city says it is considering next steps. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Much of the world is wondering where it will get its energy. A price cap on Russian oil. 
That's what G7 leaders are actively discussing in Germany today. How would it work and what effect will it potentially have? Here are the details. As G7 leaders gather in Germany, a new type of sanction against Russia is on the way. The White House said Monday that leaders are finalizing an agreement to set a global price cap on Russian oil imports. The idea is to restrict shipments of Russian oil that are above a certain price threshold, potentially by pressuring insurers that make trading oil possible. The White House said a global price cap would reduce the Kremlin's income from oil and curb inflation by limiting the impact of high oil prices. And this would have a double effect. First of all, it would empty Putin's war chest. And secondly, having a reasonable price for Russian oil would be an enormous relief for other vulnerable countries who are really having a problem now with the high oil prices. It's probably too clever to sustain real-world implementation risk. Doug Redeker is a non-resident senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution. He says it's hard for the price cap to work as intended. Uh, to be able to actually do so, you would need to cobble together a wide number of oil importing countries from around the world, not just the U.S. and the EU. And Mike Harris, founder of advisory firm Cribstone Strategic Macro, tells NTD that such a sanction is not a fundamental solution to high gas prices because it does not address supply. This, pro this program, for what it's worth, absolutely does not diminish reliance on Russian oil. All it's trying to do is make sure we pay less for it. Right. So 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 it is a way. It, so, so the irony is basically we're, we're saying we would be super, super happy if Putin pumped as much as possible. Meanwhile, on inflation. So the idea that's going to reduce inflation is just nonsense. Energy market expert Dr. Anas Alhaji tells NTD that China could still buy Russian oil at a higher price despite the sanction and in turn sell it to Western countries. India and China might end up re-exporting the Russian oil to uh to the EU, but the only way they re-export it because they are making money, that means they are making uh, a higher price than what they are paying for the Russians, and therefore the EU is paying the higher price anyway. In addition to targeting Russia, G7 leaders also announced a new $600 billion infrastructure plan to counter China's influence. The U.S. is pledging to raise $200 billion of that money to boost infrastructure in lower- and middle-income nations. Stay tuned for our Don Ma's analysis on the Belt and Road Initiative in the second half of the show. And also coming up, Florida continues to be ranked number one in America for higher education. Governor Ron DeSantis is now doing something about the state's scholarship program to make more students eligible. And large firms like Disney, Apple and Amazon want to cover part of their employees' abortion costs. But could they face legal trouble if they do? Find out more when we return. In every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. 
The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Education may be known as the great equalizer, but what if there are other factors playing into this? Anyone who's ever filled out a scholarship application may remember the part that asks about volunteer hours worked. While volunteering is admirable, it may not always be possible for those who need to work to support their families. Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did something about that. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Florida continues to rank number one in the country for higher education, according to U.S. News. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis explained one of the reasons why. There aren't very many places that you can go and get a credible four-year degree and pay $6,000, $6,500 for tuition. That's just not even in the realm of possibility in, in almost any other place uh, throughout the country. He explained that since he's been governor, Florida hasn't allowed any tuition increases at state universities. On Monday, he signed into law a bill to expand Florida's scholarship program known as Bright Futures. And as many people may be aware, scholarship applications often have a requirement for volunteer hours worked. I think is not every student uh, has the luxury of being able to just do uh, volunteer hours. I mean, we have students who come from lower income families who need to work to be able to help support their families. And they should not be denied the opportunity to qualify for a scholarship just because their socioeconomic background makes it more difficult uh, to be able to do this type of volunteer work. Under the new law, students will now be able to apply their paid work hours to qualify for the scholarship. And the law has bipartisan support. Florida high school senior Blake Dellenbach, who attends Florida Virtual School, will benefit from the law as he works at his family's ice cream shop. Although I do get involved in my community, a lot of my time is spent either doing my schoolwork or at the shop. Um, so this really means the world to me because I am very much looking forward to going to a public university in Florida and with the goal being UF. Um. <laughs> the Florida Bright Futures Scholarship Program is funded primarily by the Florida Lottery. During the 2021-22 school year, over 120,000 Florida students received Bright Futures Scholarships. Jason Perry, NTD News. Now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, firms are saying they'll cover travel expenses for employees who cross state lines to get an abortion. But is that even legal? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Many large companies say they will cover travel expenses for employees who want to get an abortion. For example, if a person lives in a state where abortion is almost completely illegal, such as Utah, the company will pay for you to travel to a state where it is legal, such as Nevada. It's hard to see what the benefit is for, for, for shareholders. It's going to be upsetting to um, you know conservatives, and, and conservatives are 35% of the the population. William Flagg is the founder and CEO of the American Conservative Values ETF. Flagg says this move alienates both customers and employees. I think it's really just uh, the senior executives of those companies using it as a 
a mechanism to, um, you know, express their opinion. In addition, these companies may encounter legal troubles. Those employers will stand substantial risks that they may be prosecuted for aiding and abetting individuals and in, um, going against the law. Angela Redock Wright is the founder of the Redock Law Group. Redock says it remains to be seen exactly how the legal issues will unfold. It's a big deal. I mean, because even a company as big as Disney or Starbucks even or Dick's Sporting Goods, um, although they presumably have the resources to defend themselves in any such lawsuits, um, it takes away from their business. State lawmakers have even threatened companies over their policies. Some are outlining abortion-related proposals to prevent businesses from covering travel expenses. One firm that may be affected by all this is Disney, which already covers travel expenses for those seeking abortions, but reiterated its policy. To me, this is just a, a political statement that the company is making. Jose Castillo is a resort duty manager at the Walt Disney Company, as well as a Republican running for Congress. Castillo says many of his colleagues don't like the direction Disney is headed. One in particular, he said to me, you know, I don't know how much longer I can work for this company, you know, because this is, they, they feel the same way. I do believe the very liberal left are the small minority. There's a vast majority of customers, where I call them the silent majority at Walt Disney World, who are uh, against what the company is doing. The Wall Street Journal says eight states so far have implemented a near-total ban on abortion, and six could very soon follow. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. So inflation is everywhere. Where do you look to preserve the value of your money then? Many are investing in collectibles that are known to go up in value, especially one category of goods that's standing the test of time. Literally. NTD's Phil Zoe reports. Vintage cars, antiques, comic books, and more. Collectibles that investors have been pouring money into since the CCP virus pandemic hit. Some of them have fallen back down in value after shooting up, but one category seems to be doing better than most. Watches have the benefit of the physical size, the, the actual collectability, the culture of people wanting to own many and then wear them and actually use them. Luxury watches have been fetching returns of 30% or more in the past year. That's according to the Subdial 50 Index that tracks the top traded luxury watch prices. Robert Velasquez has a passion for watches. He used to work at Patek Philippe and has been a watch consultant for nearly two decades. He says the rise of social media really boosted the watch industry. That created a very high demand, the supply stayed the same, and the pandemic actually exasperated the whole situation because now you have less watches and more people who want them. And in the third quarter of 2020, you have so many people who had expendable income, didn't have any way to spend it because nobody was traveling or going on vacation or, or eating dinners. He adds that it doesn't take a lot of money to get started. If you have an entry price point that starts at something as low as a few hundred dollars, you can buy a Seiko, you can buy some micro brands that are very low priced, but you can also spend millions and millions of dollars on something that takes about the same amount of space and travel with it and such and, and trade them. But beware, although luxury watches are up in the past year, prices have dropped down a bit, about 6% in the past 30 days, according to the same index. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Los Angeles District Attorney recently defended his policies during a webinar. He says the public's criticism towards him is due to misinformation. 
former high school football coach Joe Kennedy, who was fired for praying on the field, had his case ruled on by the Supreme Court today. NTD's Dave Martin has the details. Los Angeles District Attorney recently defended his policies during a discussion on previous criminal cases. He attributed the public's criticisms to misinformation. NTD Cynthia Kai has the story. Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon defended his policy decision in the 2009 case of Victor Bibaino in a webinar last week. The case involved a juvenile charged with a double murder. The suspect was released from serving a life sentence and went on to commit another murder. But Gascon says misinformation led the public to criticize his policies. Again, this is one of those cases where uh, misinformation is, is, is very um, prevalent and there is a, and you have people that really are not familiar with the case, uh, you know, making legal opinions um, and quite frankly, people that do not understand juvenile law, which I know it, it, it may sound to some of you as over, overly complicated. But However, critics blame Gascon for soft on crime policies. His policies have been attributed to the recent death of two police officers. The officers were ambushed during a domestic violence call and died after a shootout. Gascon is also facing a recall effort. The recall has surpassed the needed signatures ahead of the July 6th deadline, but is currently adding more signatures to cushion any losses during the verification process. Meanwhile, the recall effort is getting support from the leader of another recent effort. Richie Greenberg is joining the effort. He founded the movement that succeeded in recalling San Francisco's district attorney, Chesa Boudin. Greenberg is meeting with leaders of the committee undertaking the Gascon recall to provide consulting and support. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. And more news from our California team. The Wizard of Oz is an American classic. And just like any classic, new adaptations are being made of Dorothy's story. NTD's Jackie Rios talked to one, of, one author who made a version employing his own flavoring of culture in a version titled El Oz. David Damien Figueroa gave the beloved tale of self-discovery a Latino twist. He talked about some of the adaptations that readers will find in his book, El Oz. I grew up as an agriculture worker. I grew up as a farm worker in Arizona, so there's a little bit of agriculture in there. Um, I went to Mexico many, many times to the pyramids, and you know I was very inspired by um, the Aztecs and the Mayans and all of the different characters and the spirits and the names they would give um, to each of the spirits. And um, so I did the food. So there's a little bit of all of that in this book. El Oz is about a young girl named Dolores and her dog Pepito who, just like Dorothy and Toto, find themselves in a strange land and need to find their way home. David recalls growing up with his mother, spending family time reading to him. So I, I grew up with my mother reading the Bible to me and I really loved that time. It was like our family time. And um, so it really shaped a lot who I am today. And so I learned a lot through the lessons she would give me through the Bible or any other book that she was reading to me. And um, so I wanted to create a family reading 
novel that parents could read to their children. David says the book stands on its own and has a positive message. It's a story of um, forgiveness. It's a story of finding your path, staying on your divine path. And it's a story also of uh, friendship and companions. Um, but it's, it's also um, about transforming oneself through forgiveness. The name for Dolores was inspired by his longtime friend and mentor, Dolores Huerta. As for Pepito, David had a beloved dog named Pepito, who after racing for 17 years, passed away before the book came out. A loss is now available for purchase. Jackie Reels, NTD News, Los Angeles. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Supreme Court today ruled in favor of former high school football coach Joe Kennedy, who was suspended and later fired for kneeling and praying on the field after games. The court ruled 6-3 in his favor, saying his actions were protected by the First Amendment. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, saying in part, the Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Coach Kennedy said in a statement, all I've ever wanted was to be back on the field with my guys. I thank God for answering our prayers and sustaining my family through this long battle. Kennedy was formerly a football coach at Bremerton High School in Washington starting in 2008. The former Marine made a commitment to God that he would give thanks at the end of every game. Over time, his simple gesture attracted players from both teams to join in. In 2015, though, the school district investigated his actions and eventually suggested they were unconstitutional. He was placed on administrative leave and eventually fired. The ruling by the Supreme Court ends a nearly seven-year-long legal battle. In basketball news, Brittany Griner's case in Russia will finally start on July 1st. The WNBA star has been in Russia for more than four months after Russian authorities say they found vape cartridges containing cannabis oil in her luggage at a Moscow airport. Griner, who stars for the Phoenix Mercury, has been ordered to remain in custody for the duration of the trial. Less than 1% of cases in Russia, though, end in acquittals, and acquittals can be overturned. Griner's arrest came less than a week before Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February. In May, the U.S. State Department reclassified her case as wrongfully detained. Meanwhile, the prisoner swap of Marine veteran Trevor Reed in April fueled hope that Griner could be next. Griner, who plays basketball in the off-seasons in Russia, is a two-time Olympic champion as well as a WNBA champion. The league season started back on May 6th. At the first round of Wimbledon today, Novak Djokovic beat Kwon Wu Su in four sets for his 80th win at the All England Club. The victory means he's the first ever to win that many matches at each of the four majors. Djokovic has won Wimbledon six times, including each last three, and has 20 Grand Slam titles overall. With top-ranked men's player Daniel Medvedev banned because of the war in Ukraine and second-ranked Alexander Zverev out with an injury, the third-ranked Djokovic is the top seed at the All-England Club. And finally on the ice, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup last night, beating the two-time defending champion Tampa Bay Lightning 2-1 to win in six. Colorado defenseman Kale McCarr won the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP. The 23-year-old, who also won the Norris Trophy as the NHL's top defenseman in the regular season, led the Avalanche in postseason scoring with 29 points in 20 games. 
Colorado's Stanley Cup win was the franchise's first since 2001. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, we'll take a closer look at China's Belt and Road Initiative and how it impacts participating countries. And a Ukrainian official says at least 11 people are dead after two Russian missiles hit a crowded shopping center. We'll have the details for you after this short break. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why. What's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, G7 member nations announced a global infrastructure program over the weekend. It aims to counter Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. That's the Chinese initiative, known for handing out huge loans to less developed countries in the name of boosting infrastructure. But critics say the initiative does more harm than good for participating countries. NTD's Don Ma has more for us. China's Belt and Road Initiative has been labeled a form of debt trap diplomacy. Western officials have long argued that the initiative benefits China more than the receiving countries. Why is that? Let's take a look at some examples. Under the Belt and Road, Sri Lanka paid for the construction project of its Hambantota port with $1.1 billion in Chinese loans. But the port failed to generate revenue. So when Sri Lanka couldn't pay back its loan, it was forced to hand over the port and 15,000 acres of land around it to China on a 99-year lease. In 2018, then-Vice President Mike Pence cited fears that the Hambantota port could be used as a military base for China's growing naval power, saying China used debt diplomacy to extend its influence. The terms of the loans are opaque at best, and the benefits flow to Beijing. Another example is Pakistan, which experts fear is following in Sri Lanka's footsteps. Pakistan tops the list of recipient countries of the Belt and Road with assistance from China worth $27.3 billion. Beijing's flagship project in the country is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. The road connects China with the Gwadar port near Pakistan's largest city. The port is currently on a 40-year lease to China. It greatly increases China's accessibility to the Middle East and will likely allow Beijing to increase its naval presence in the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. Chinese officials say that Belt and Road projects are business ventures, not aid. Most lending is on commercial terms, and the details are often kept secret. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping proposed the Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative in 2013. Since then, the project has influenced more than half of the world's population. That's according to Chinese state media outlet Global Times. The outlet has published a series of stories on how the project is growing globally. One example, its cross-continental train service. The route plays an important role in enhancing trade between China and Europe, including the automotive sector. 
According to Global Times, the China-Europe freight train service has transported 15 billion yuan worth of imported and exported vehicles since 2017. That's an estimated value of over $2 billion. Driven by the trend, many Chinese tech companies have opened factories in Poland, Hungary, the Netherlands and other locations in Europe in recent years. From 2016 to 2021, the annual number of China-Europe freight trains increased from a little less than 2,000 to over 15,000. And the annual value of goods transported increased ninefold. The Global Times cited a Chinese trader as saying cargo train shipping from Hamburg port in Germany to Ningbo port in China takes just 18 days and has a similar cost to ocean freight shipping. And the Pacific Islands occupy a key place for Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. China has quietly rolled out projects in the region in recent years, but now the playing field may have started to shift. Let's take a look. More top U.S. officials are expected to visit Pacific Island countries. That's what White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator Kurt Campbell said Thursday. Washington is stepping up its engagement in the strategically critical region, an attempt to counter Beijing. China is boosting economic, military and security links with Pacific Island nations hungry for foreign investment. Just last month, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi paid a visit to 10 Pacific nations, endorsing an agreement which would have greatly increased the Chinese Communist regime's influence in the region. Campbell explained that sovereignty is a key aspect in the Pacific region and that any initiative that compromises or calls into question that sovereignty, I think we would have concerns with. Beijing's long arm was highlighted by its security pact with the Solomon Islands this year, raising concerns of a Chinese naval base being established close to Australia. Campbell added that the U.S. needs more diplomatic facilities across the Pacific region, especially with island nations that receive lesser attention. He acknowledged that Washington had not always sufficiently taken the needs of islanders into account. That's after some Indo-Pacific countries lamented what they've described as lacking economic engagement from the U.S. Many of these nations count China as their top trading partner. The Indo-Pacific region has become the latest tug-of-war between the U.S. and China. Its location holds important military significance. It started back in 2018 when the idea of setting up a Pearl Maritime Road initiative between China and Tonga was brought onto the table. The project proposal was seen as an extension of the Belt and Road Initiative into the Southwest Pacific. And now to Ukraine, which says two Russian missiles hit a crowded shopping center in the city, central city of Kremenchuk. Officials say at least 11 people have died and 40 are wounded. And TD's Eddie Aitken has more on this. A Reuters reporter saw the charred husk of a shopping complex with a caved-in roof. Firefighters and soldiers were on the scene searching for survivors. Ukrainian President Zelensky said more than 1,000 people were in the shopping center at the time of the attack. He gave no details of casualties, but said it is impossible to even imagine the number of victims. The regional governor said it was unlikely many survivors would be found in the smoldering rubble because it was a big fire and there was a lot of smoke. He also said there was no military targets nearby that Russia could have been aiming at and called it an act of terrorism against civilians. Officials said a rescue operation was underway and nine of the wounded were in a serious condition. Kremenchuk lies on the Dnipro River in the region of Poltava and is the site of Ukraine's biggest oil refinery. 
There was no immediate comment from Russia, which denies deliberately targeting civilians. Heidi Aitken, NTD News. Coming up, a city in France celebrated the Middle Ages over the weekend. Participants showcased medieval crafts and traditions, including the art of battle. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. France, a medieval city near Paris, celebrated the Middle Ages over the weekend. From craftsmen demonstrating ancient skills to armored knights with swords, the showcase of medieval traditions drew tens of thousands of visitors. NTD's France correspondent David Vives went to find out more. Despite the rain, the medieval city of Provence attracts visitors from across the France to its medieval festival. This city was built during the 8th century, and each year, for around a thousand years, it has held a yearly fair. The agricultural and trade fair was crucial to the medieval economy. It now hosts the largest medieval festival in France, which attracts craftsmen upholding traditional skills in the making of accessories, furnitures and clothes. Many associations also present medieval traditions. One of them is the Beowulf or the art of battle upheld by medieval knights. The Beowulf represents an assault that would take place during a battle. It is an attack that would last a few seconds or a few minutes, during which one seeks to knock down one's opponent. Colin says this kind of fight proves to be exhausting. The goal of knights was to be agile enough to use feints and kill the adversary as soon as possible. This is what we found in the historical treatises, basic moves and the sequences that we will put into practice. This is what we do with the crosses, and we repeat the gesture several times in a row. It takes money and patience for the members of the association to build their knight rig one piece at a time. These are the first helmets to be made. Here you have helmets from the first crusades. Here you can see that they were painted because during the first crusades, the first cause of death was the heat. The soldiers were cooked in their armor, so they painted the helmets in white. Specialized educator Guillaume Guénel works with children who dropped out at school. He says medieval traditions are a topic of choice to stimulate children's imagination and creativity. For your military high achievements, I appoint you knight of our land. Now rise up, knight. This is the 12th year that we have come with middle school students who have worked all year on a medieval project. They built their own costumes, accessories. They sewed those themselves. They worked with leather to make their own ornaments and bells. The old ways live long at Provence and it'll be back next year. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.